Uh, looking at today's uh, passage, uh, we've, last week we finished verses 4 to 6. We're looking now verses 7 uh, to 12 onwards is going to be of Christ. We're going to look at verses 7. Verses 7 says this, In Him we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of His grace. In verses 7, there's a big word that is mentioned. begins with R, and that word is redemption. Uh, the word redemption. In looking at verses 7, you see that the word is tied with other uh, aspects. The description of redemption of what it accomplished is forgiveness of our sins, specifically our trespass. And also it says, according to the riches of His grace. Okay, In light of the riches of His grace, in light of the fact that redemption shows the riches of His grace, I think it's important that we look more deeper at the word redemption. Okay, We look more deeper at the word redemption. And by the way, even as we go through slowly through Ephesians, there will be times we look at, like uh, two weeks ago, we look at the word adoption, just going more in depth. And then knowing what it is, we approach the rest of the passage. Same thing what we're doing today is we're going to look at the word redemption and going more deeper with what that word means. And then later we'll do an exposition next week of verses 7 to 12. The same thing we're going to do also as well just for you guys a preview of even verses 13 to 14. When we talk about uh, pledge, we're going to zoom in at what the word pledge means in its original context. Then we'll look at the rest of uh, verses 13 and 14. Uh, I think in verses, in just even the first chapter of Ephesians, it is a very rich book with a lot of, or the terms um, and the theology in just the first chapter, I think is very rich. So in light of this today, we're going to look at the term redemption. Do you know how rich the term redemption is? Because in verse 7, it says it very clearly in terms of the relations of the word redemption. It's further described that it is according to the riches of His grace. So as establishing why this sermon is important today, we want to ask the question is, is do you know how rich the term redemption is in the Bible? Okay. I know we've covered the book of Ruth last year. Uh, I think there's a sense where you see an insight into the word redemption. I think that's a multifaceted term. Okay. Uh, with that, that's more of the kinsman redeemer. But today I'm going to look more at the idea of economic redemption. Uh, because I think this is the shade of meaning that is now flows into the New Testament. So if you're taking notes today, we're going to be answering three questions. We're going to be answering how many questions? Three questions, okay? So if you're taking notes, um, number one is, what does redemption mean for the original hearers? What does redemption mean for the original hearers? Number two, why do we need spiritual redemption? We're going to cover why do we need spiritual redemption, okay? Why do we need spiritual redemption? It's okay. Okay. Why do we need spiritual redemption? Sorry, I'm laughing after I did that. And I'm saying, why do we need spiritual redemption? Okay, we'll look at four reasons for it. Point number two. And question number three is, who has provided our spiritual redemption? Uh, who has provided for our spiritual redemption? Okay, these are going to be the three questions. Let me repeat them again. Why, why does spirit, why does, what does redemption mean for the original hearers? Number two is, why do we need spiritual redemption? Why do we need spiritual redemption? Number three is, who has provided for our spiritual redemption? Okay? So let us now look at our first point. Our first question is, what does redemption mean for the original hearers? Okay? And by the way, if you guys were on Tuesday Lighthouse, uh, you guys have known that we're doing a series on sin. And one of the things I hope you guys catch, and even from all our study, is I see the importance of the way to be relevant. Uh, we want preachings to be relevant. Say this after me. We want God's Word. To be, to be relevant. Now, when you say this, some of us will be like, whoa, wait, 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 Jimmy, is Jimmy going to go hipster on us? No, I'm not going to have a bar stool here pretty soon. And, and you know, like, I'm not going to be preaching with, you know, Hawaiian shirt and, and wearing uh, uh, sandals and, and be cool a hipster, okay? Where my jeans is even more tighter than even, you know, I don't know, yoga pants or something like that, okay? That's not the trend we're going to be going. I'm not going to be bringing up here, uh, I don't know, some kind of Starbucks or mo mocha, whatever, I don't know, fancy, crazy, hipster tea. That's not what I mean by relevant, okay? But I think the way to be relevant, there's a wrong way of going about it, is one way is to please the culture, be man-centered. But the right way, I actually think, the more I read the Bible, the more way to be relevant in every culture is go back to the original meaning. And then when you see the original meaning of things, you see, whoa, hey, this has reached any culture, whether urban or whether rural. Just like as we've been going over for Lighthouse and the word sin, we look at the original meaning, you realize, whoa, this could be all time period, whatever. 
When you go to the original context, then it relates to everyone. The people that are urban, with it, oh, they're educated and like, oh, we could understand things that are rural. The people that are rural is like, okay, this is my day-to-day life, okay? Any culture and everything else. And I think when you look at the word redemption, this is also the same way. The way you can reach all people, I think, is go deeper to the original meaning, and then you see, whoa, God has already built in natural analogies or supernatural analogies to explain to every culture what does the word redemption mean or, or what does God done for us. And when you look at the word redemption, our point number one is what does redemption mean for the original hearer? So in the book of Ephesians, this is a church that has what? Mixed Jews and what else? Gentiles, okay? You'll see that explained later on a little bit even further when he describes also as well, right? Certain things as it goes on, even application. So this is a church that's mixed with Jews and Gentiles. And when he uses the term, I think Paul uses this term that both Jews and even those that are Gentile would have both understood. So we ask this question, what does the term mean, the term redemption mean in Greek and Jewish light? So turn with, so today will be a bit topical. We're going to look at different passages, okay? So turn, uh, as we see here, um, turn with me also, put your pinky or thumb here, and then turn with me to Romans 3.24. Romans 3.24. Okay, Romans 3.24 uh, says this, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, in uh, Romans 3.24 here shows that our justify, us, us being declared righteous, is also tied with redemption. Okay? And by the way, in writing the, this letter to uh, Paul to Rome, was this also a mixed church also as well? Mixed people group church. Yes or no? Church in Rome? Rome is a pretty mixed city, right? Later on, he'll talk about Romans 9-11. Okay? Uh, Romans 9-11 about how God has brought in the Jews. And also right now is the time of the Gentiles. But God, is he done with the Jews? As a F- no, that's Romans 10 and 11, okay? Uh, I think it's unfortunate a lot of Reformed people really love Romans 9, right? They salivate as soon as they say Romans 9. But then once they talk about Israel, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, you believe in Israel? No, no, I don't, I don't believe there's no more place for Israel. And then you're like, wait, what happened in Romans 10 and 11, okay? What happened in Romans 10 and 11, okay? So same thing also as well. In, in looking at this, okay, you see that there's a context in both Ephesians and in Romans. You see that it's tied to our salvation. Now, in looking at this term, this would have been an everyday term people would have understood. And what does it mean for the Greek uh, ears? This term is actually a commercial term, okay? So this is a commercial term. This is, would have been an everyday uh, word, okay? Sometimes I think when we live life, sometimes we take a lot of things for granted, true or not. We don't understand uh, the intricacy of how things are related. For instance, uh, we live in, I know we're kind of, uh, we are talking about globalization. I feel actually when you look at history, there's always been, globalization is nothing new. Maybe the technology is different to make things much more connected than before. But this, uh, in terms of trade, right, you realize like, whoa, we're interrelated, uh, connected through trade. So this would have been an everyday term that people would have understood. And in the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world at this time, a third of the Roman Empire was actually not citizens. There was very few Roman citizens. Even if you were born in the Roman Empire. Even if you're born in Rome, doesn't mean you're a Roman citizen. But rather, a third of the Roman world at this time were actually slaves. This term would have been understood because this term is often used to describe the purchasing of a slave from freedom, okay? So if you buy a slave, that means you transfer ownership of one master to another master. But how do you free about slave? So the Roman culture back then, is you can't actually free slaves, but then there needs to be a, a structure. There's legal matters to, because you don't want to just total emancipate everybody, okay? So there'll be a way to go about purchasing someone's freedom from slavery, okay? So the process would have been this. Uh, this would be a scenario. Say someone became a slave, because they couldn't pay back a loan. So if someone comes along, so he has to work for somebody, but then maybe a relative or a friend says, you know what, I don't want you to be a slave no longer. So the way to free that person from slavery, he can't just say, hey, I want this guy free and that's it. So someone else has to purchase him, okay? Someone else has to what? Purchase, purchase him, okay? From the slave market, but instead of this time going through the slave market, they have to also purchase that guy. You can't just say, okay, you know, like, I'm Jimmy Lee and I just want to free, I don't know, uh, uh, 
I'll just name my daughters, Rebecca, okay? Uh, so the way uh, I go about it is I can't just go and say, oh, I'm going to buy it. So you have to go and say to the temple, to the pagan god's temple or goddesses, and say, you know what? We're going to purchase the name of the god or goddess. No, again, let me say this. I'm not saying this is right theology. I'm just saying this is the context of how the term would have been understood in their day-to-day pagan world, okay? So in order to free someone to be a slave, you have to go to the temple to purchase that person. So they become, that person becomes no longer a slave of human beings, but a slave of a higher master that no one else can buy from that higher master, which is some kind of divine being. Because then after that purchase, person purchased, is, uh, that person might be day-to-day practically free, but that person is always now a slave of who? One of the god or goddesses that has purchased them, okay? Uh, of course, there's someone that pays the money, you know, someone that's kind enough, benevolent, but it's also going to the temple and then the temple saying, okay, this person is purchased. And now that person is free, but is always a slave of who? Of God, okay? I'm really going to say is this because I think this helps us understand the Bible because there's parts of the Bible that say we're free. Free from sin if you're a believer. Are you free from sin? They'll say you're free. But then there'll be passages that'll say, wait, why is there a contradiction? It says we're a slave of who? Christ. Okay, oh, once we become a believer, sorry. I should clarify. Uh, once we're, uh, with that, we were once before slave of sin, okay? Uh, but now we're slave of who? Uh, of God, okay? But then it's free, so it's not a contradiction because it's just the same thing. If you have a, if someone that's free from slavery in the Roman world and you say, hey, I thought you were a slave. Then that person would say, if the person says, yo, no, I'm free. Or if the person says, no, I'm a slave of someone else. That technically is correct. That person's not, he'll say, no, 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 please don't arrest me. I'm a slave of whatever, God, okay? Or he says, no, I'm, I have been free. And technically, both are correct. The basis for that person being free is now that person is now a slave of what? Of some divine being. This would have been the term understood in the Greco-Roman ear. What does it mean in Jewish ears? The same term is also, surprisingly, in the Old Testament translation of the New Testament, uh, Correction, the Greek translation Old Testament, what is called the Septuagint, they use the same term from the day-to-day world and use it to describe purchase, economic purchase also as well. Okay? Uh, turn with me to Leviticus 27, verse 19 to 20. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 27, verses 19 to 20. So if you're opening up Genesis, Exodus, third book is called Leviticus chapter 27, Verse 19 to 20. Okay? Leviticus 27, verses 19 to 20. If you, if the one who consecrated shall wish to redeem the field, notice that word appear, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation to price, so that it may pass to him. Yet if he will not redeem the field, but have sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. I'm looking at this in a sense, it's not a, uh, a context of salvation. But you see this term definitely used. Same Greek term, definitely used in what? An economic context of what? Purchasing of a field to, to get it back uh, with that, okay? But then we see where it gets more closer to the theme of salvation in a way that shadows or anticipate that. In Exodus 13, verses 11 to 16. Let's turn with me to Exodus. So if you're Leviticus, you turn to the previous book. Exodus chapter 13. So Exodus chapter what? 13, okay. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 16. Now I'm going to read this and then we'll break it down uh, from this, okay? Now while we're looking at this, just keep the big picture in perspective. I just want to show you what does this word mean for the Jewish ears once it's used in the context of the Old Testament, which then flows into the book of Ephesians, right? Uh, Verses 11 to 16, I'm going to read this. It's a bit long and then we'll break it down, okay? Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as He swore to you and to your fathers and give it to you, You shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And that shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand of the Lord, the, brought, the Lord brought you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, 
but every firstborn of my son I redeem. So serve as a sign on your hand and as peric, uh, I can't pronounce the word, on your forehead, for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Okay? Looking at this, there was a Jewish custom of redemption during this time period. An Old Testament custom that God wanted, okay? The command is this. Looking at this, the command is this. You see in verses 12 and 13, the command is that every firstborn male must belong to the Lord or they shall be devoted. And remember the context in Exodus. Remember when God brought a plague? The last one was what? Every firstborn shall be what? Killed, okay? Did this happen for the Jews or those that had blood on the signposts? No, okay? God has saved them or spared them. But they came with a cost. They should have died, but they didn't. So to, to capture this image, every firstborn should always belong to the Lord okay, as a sign of God's graciousness. And also as an act of you're thankful to God as a, an offering with that. Now, firstborn donkey. Let me ask you guys this question. In terms of economic term, if you're a farmer, are there some animals in terms of individual unit, like one of them, is worth more than others in terms of economic or, or agricultural terms? Let me ask you guys a question. Maybe the better way of asking is this. If you go to a farmer's market and someone's selling a donkey and someone's selling a lamb and a chicken, which one would cost more? The donkey. Which one costs less? Chicken. chicken, okay. Which one would be in the middle? Is a lamb, okay. Between that, okay. So, to kill every firstborn donkey, which probably donkeys don't have birth as often, right? Um, compared to lambs and, and, and other things. You would kind of say, oh man, I really need this in order to be economic, uh, to till the land, to do everything else that I need, okay? So, in order to spare the firstborn donkey from being killed, who takes his place? The lamb redeems it, okay? It's a transaction, okay? Uh, why lamb? Well, because that's a theme. Since Genesis 22, the theme of what the lamb as a sacrifice in place of, or as a substitution, okay? Ever since the story of Abraham and what? Isaac. Uh, uh, you know, God is spirit Isaac. And the substitute is what? Uh, with that is Abraham says, God will one day provide a lamb. So this is a, a shadowing, an analogy, an imagery, anticipating the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which John one twenty nine, John the Baptist identifies Jesus, okay? Notice what we're to do. Verses 13 to the lamb. Uh, is purchased, uh, redeemed with a lamb. And verse 13, the first part, it says, you shall break its neck. And then verse 13 also as well says, Every firstborn man among your sons shall be redeemed. Okay? By the way, later on also as well, you might say, Oh, I have a firstborn son. He should be the one that take care of the home. But how can I send him to be a priest? Then now there's a whole tribe that takes his place, that role. What is that tribe called? To become priest for God? The tribe of Levi. Okay? So do you see that built in in the Bible, there's already this idea of substitution. Substitution. I bring up to say is this. I think the average church, most people, it's like when you say substitution, yeah, that's not controversial. That's the glory of the gospel. But sadly, you know what? There's seminaries in America. I don't know how you ever could do it. That would look at the scripture and say what? That the theme of uh, substitution, they'll say, oh no, it's not taught in the Bible. It's just made up by Martin Luther. Sadly, those pastors will then go to pastor churches and then teach these crazy idea. And guess what happened? They undermine the gospel. Okay? Uh, so be careful of certain guys. And there are people out there uh, with that view. Okay? Um, so in light of this, we see the explanation then. Of course, this might be a strange custom. And do, uh, by the time we get, uh, get to Leviticus, there's also uh, looking forward to future generation uh, carrying this law out. Then the explanation is in verses 14 to 16. Because look, notice the anticipation in verses 14 that it, uh, Moses realized people later on ask, Hey, why do we do this uh, custom? It seemed rather bizarre. What's the meaning of this? Then he explains, it says, the explanation is explained in verses 14 and 15, like I said earlier, going back to the killing of the firstborn in Egypt. And then this custom in verses 16 is to remind us of what? God's redemption of Israel. Okay? So I bring this to say this, the Jews would have understand this term of redemption as some kind of substitutionary cost. Okay? Some kind of substitutionary cost, as we see here, even involving death. So when you go back to Ephesians... When it says, if you guys could turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7. When it says here, in him we have redemption through his blood. Then you say, oh, whoa, okay, I understand. A little deeper in the Old Testament. Redemption always involved blood, okay? Remember we saw earlier, breaking of death and death, right? In fact, even in Leviticus 17, it says what? Uh, redemption requires what? Blood, okay? 
Uh, that's why all those animals' death is anticipating the death of the blood of what? Christ, okay? So in light of this, we now ask, so uh, we've already answered our first question. What does this term mean for the original hearers? Okay, let me emphasize again. The way to be relevant, I really believe, we should be relevant. I don't believe, listen, listen. I don't believe preaching is coming up here with a running commentary, right? And it says the word is this, this is an error's tense. Ha, ha, ha. You know, that, that's not preaching. The preaching must apply to what? Our lives, okay? Mm-hmm. And the way to, to be relevant, the sin would be what? Is I also think it would be not godly preaching if it never applies to who? The hearers, okay? But the right way is not to be pragmatic, to be world-centered or man-centered. The right way is to say, what does this term mean? And then I think in any culture, you could always make a bridge to preach a gospel everywhere, okay? You could be in the middle of the Middle East and say, hey, I notice you are of a certain faith that your holy site in Mecca, you guys make sacrifices to who? To Allah. But you know what? You know what? This, so you understand the idea of redemption. But you know what? God has says you cannot kill an amount of animals. None of this could fulfill this. But guess what? Jesus Christ is our redemption, okay? You could go even to America. You might say, oh, American culture in the West, we don't do any animal sacrifice. But do we have the imagery of slavery? Yeah. Even in American historical DNA of our history, was there a big war fought over slavery? Yeah. Okay? In 1861, 1865, what is that war called? Civil War, okay? Or, um, according to my Southern Marines, uh, the War of Northern Aggressions, okay? But that's another story, another time, okay? So, uh, in light of this, we get even those that, you know, um, have some sympathy with the South in terms of history, maybe more of heritage, most of them will say, yeah, slavery was wrong. American slavery was wrong, okay? Even those guys in this... The Southern Marines I, you know, served with in Iraq, they'll say, yeah, yeah, no, no, we're not for, you know, we're not for that. We're, you know, but there's other things, a state principle. It was, okay, okay, all right, okay. We're not going to get But yeah, at the same time, right? At the same time, in light of this, you could bring the analogy of also as well the pre- uh, purchasing of freedom, of redemption. Do you see how it's relevant in any culture? You could always preach the gospel in a way that every culture would understand, okay? Every culture would understand. I mean, even as, after all, even today, when we hear stories of people that are, you know, um, what do you call that, human trafficking, aren't people moved? When we hear stories of like, oh, there's slavery ongoing right now in Africa or wherever else, but people purchase people for redemption, for slavery, right? Okay. I mean, it's built in in every culture because of our sinfulness. You could always use the analogy of redemption everywhere. So the key to be relevant is what? Know the scripture, okay? To know its original context, okay? To know its original context, okay? Uh, I mean, even think about the story of American Plymouth. You know, in, what do you call that time period? Uh, the Thanksgiving story. What's often what we share is what? The pilgrims came over across the sea, and when they came over, what did they do? Who helped them out? To the Indians, okay? Now, there's a point of, you know, I think they knew how to farm already, sort of, but then they helped them with, hey, fertilizer with a fish, you know, buried, okay? But then there was someone they landed. You guys remember the story in American history? When they landed, there was somebody that knew English. Do you guys remember who that Indian name is? Well, there's actually three, but we only remember one uh, we teach, okay? Uh, do you guys remember what was his name? Begins with S. Yeah, and that's, like a, that's uh, Lewis and Clark, which is also another, fa- oh man, that's another fascinating story another time too. She was a Shoshone Indian because there was one point when they were traveling, Lewis and Clark, they had to talk to this tribe that was very hostile. And then they had to like use three translators. So one of them had to speak French, I forget it was Lewis or Clark, to this Indian that knew French, and that Indian had to translate to another language, which translated them to this lady, Sakajawea, whatever her name was, which then they would speak Shoshone to that. And then while they're talking, then all they discovered, they were like very hostile, like, we don't let you look past the land. Then she discovered, oh, that's my long lost brother, okay, who's a tribal chief. And then they left and had horses and everything else. But that's another story another time. But remember Squanto? (laughs) Squanto, okay. How did that random guy in the middle of nowhere knew English? You guys know the story? He was a slave. Because some other foreigners came before, took them, uh, just went there to capture people to be slaves, took them back to Spain. And then there were these, I don't know if it's genuine Christians or not, but these guys were doing things for the name of Christ, said, you know what? I'm going to purchase you out of slavery. And then when they purchased him out of slavery, they said, you know what? It's not safe to be Spain. They're going to capture you again. Your best luck is to go to England. He went, moved over to England. And when he went to England, he learned what? English. Then he says, oh, I really miss my home. Then he went back home, and then this whole tribe was already like, killed by some other uh, Na- uh, Native American tribe and death. And then he was with another tribe, and all of a sudden, these guys came over, and he was like, hey, 
I look, I've seen these kind of people before, and then discovered they knew English. It's like, wow, what a chance is that, okay? I bring this to say is this, Providence is crazy, okay? Built in the American story here, is built in, you know, we always celebrate, you know, I like the picture of like uh, Emmeline, right? Dressing up as a little, what, was it a squaw or was it a little uh, pilgrim? For Pilgrim. Pilgrim, okay, I forgot even, okay. Yeah. Thanksgiving, it's built in, even like a bunch of kids in Granada Hills, it's all of this, right? <laughs> it, with all this. And then you can steal the story of redemption. Mm-hmm. Do you see how rich it is? Mm-hmm. The theme that we must begin, the way to be relevant, the way to preach all culture is to realize the scripture more and using that as a bridge within scripture itself. So, in light of this, let's go to point number two. Why do we need spiritual redemption? Why do we need spiritual redemption? There, scripture gives four reasons. How many reasons? Four reasons, okay? Remember, it's in the context of slavery. So the first thing we ask is, before we were slave of Christ, before we were free by Christ, what were we slave of? So reason number one why we need redemption is we are enslaved to sin, okay? Our, in our nature, we're enslaved to sin as our first reason. Turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 34. John chapter 8, verse 34. When we turn there so I could catch my breath, Josh, could you read? John chapter 8, verse 34, out loud. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a uh, slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. <coughs> okay, thank you for reading that in the actual verse. Jesus' teaching is clear. If you commit sin... It shows you are what? Sin, okay? You want a spiritual paternity test of who you are, who's your spiritual father? Is, hey, when you sin, do you have no regret at all? No remorse, no repentance, none of that? Then that shows your paternity as who you, your spirit, what your spiritual DNA is, okay? Now, I do believe Christians still struggle with sin. But I think a hallmark of a Christian is not whether it's big sin or small sin. I think as a pastor, Christians could commit all kinds of heinous sin. But the true mark of a believer is always going to be what? They're going to turn back to God and what? Confess and turn away from it. And turning away is not to turn to more self-righteousness, but turn to God first. Okay? And then the fruit follows. So we're a slave of sin. Okay? Uh, we're a slave to sin. Uh, for the sake of time, there's some more verses. But the other thing is also we're slave to false gods. Turn with me to Galatians 4.8. Okay? Galatians 4.8. Let's turn to Galatians 4.8. We're slave to what? False gods. Okay? Galatians 4.8. When we turn there, it says, However, at this that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to the, those which... By nature are not are no gods, okay? Some of us maybe perhaps have a pagan background before. Or maybe even uh, at one point in our life we might have been interested in the things that are more new age or occultish, okay? But here scripture says we're by nature slave to the things that are not what? Gods, okay? That are not gods. Okay? I'm glad the Lord saved me from even, you know, my mom's belief of uh, of you know Chinese folk religion and even uh, Buddhism also as well. Okay, those by nature are not what gods. Okay, so here we see. Okay, Galatians four eight. We are enslaved to things that are not gods. And by the way, even if you say there was no before you're not Christian, you never bow down or rub any little tummy of some little you know things in a Chinese food restaurant, or whatever else. Guess what? We have the other thing as what. We, any idols in our life are also functional what? Gods. And in the West, there are a lot of what? Functional gods. Okay? That we have. Okay? Um, even in the New Testament, it says greed is already idolatry. Okay? And idolatry is what? Is a functional God. Okay? We seek it to try to please it and thinking we have our source of meaning and joy from it. Right? Whatever you think more than God, whatever captures you that you look forward to the most that's outside of things of God it's probably can be might be an idol okay if it's above God okay third why do we need redemption is also we're enslaved to physical corruption of our body okay scripture also described that we're not just only a slave to sin we're not only a slave to false gods which is the result of our enslavement to sin we're also enslaved to our physical corruption of our body turn with me real quick 
to Romans 8.21. Romans 8.21. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse what? 21, okay? Romans 8.21. This is what it says. That the creation itself also be set free from its labor, broken into freedom of the glory of the children of God. Yeah, so this is describing all of nature right now is a slave to who? To corruption. Nature isn't the way it should be fully, true or not, okay? Um, sometimes when I meet someone at UCLA, when I used to evangelize or Pasadena State College or Caltech, when someone says, oh, you're one of those conservative, fundy Christian that doesn't believe in helping the environment, I say, like, no, I think I'm, you know, I know this is tongue-in-cheek, I say, no, I think I'm actually the true environmentalist. Because this verse says, the, they identify the root cause of all the problem, right, is what? It comes back to the issue of sin. Why is nature going bad and everything else? It's because it's subjected, it's enslaved to who? To, to corruption, because of the fall of man, okay? So the way I'm going to go about global warming and everything else is what? A campaign of global warning, okay? Of warning sinners, A, repent and turn back to God, okay? Because it says here, verses 22, the whole world creation groaned and suffered the pain of childbirth until now, okay? It's waiting as in verse 20, uh, you know, 22, it's, it's waiting for what? All the sons of glory to be revealed, okay? Those that are, God is going to save, to, that they would trust in God, okay? So you see here, uh, apparently verses 23, this also applies to us, okay? Um, verse 23 says that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of glory of the children of God, okay? So we're also under suffering under this bondage of corruption, okay? Uh, of physical corruption of our body, okay? And the world breaking down. So this is another reason why we want what? Redemption, okay? This is again another reason why we want what? Redemption, okay? So let me recap again the first three reasons. First is because we're enslaved to sin. Secondly, we're enslaved to false what? Gods. Thirdly, we are enslaved to physical corruption of our body. And fourth is because the wages of sin is what? Death. This shows the inevitable result of what we're enslaved to. In light of the fact that we're enslaved to an idol, in light of the fact that we're enslaved to sin, in light of the fact that also we're enslaved to physical corruption with our body, the ultimate result is death in the fullest sense. Turn with me to Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. Go ahead, Josh. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in yeah. Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. The wages of sin is death, okay? There's more than one kind of death. So most of the time when we think of death is what? Our soul separated from our body, okay? That's what the biblical definition is, death. Okay, not the unbiblical. I think sometimes we assume the unbiblical is what? You just cease to exist. But that's unbiblical because after you, your body and spirit separates, right? There is consciousness still, okay? And there is an eternity of consciousness of God blessing or what? The curses that we deserve, okay? So here, death in its fullest sense is one sense is what? That we are separated from God. We don't have no relationship with Him. Are there people that are physically alive today that are spiritually dead? Yes. yes. That's what Ephesians 2, when we get there, verses 1 to 3 teaches, okay? You get people driving on the 10th freeway, fully alive, good driver, but yet they're spiritually zombies, okay? So here we see that there's not only that death, but there's also another death. The second death is what? The second death is also the judgment of God for our sins, okay? Uh, judgment of God for our sins, Okay, so Romans uh, 8, 20, uh, 6, 23 reveals that. So this is why we want spiritual redemption, okay? This is why we want spiritual redemption, okay? Uh, so uh, these are the four reasons. And let me ask you guys this question before we move on, even as application. Are you guys aware of just how bad it is if we are apart from Christ? What a scripture says, we're enslaved to sin, right? Look back, even if you're a believer, the times when it was like, man, I... Keep on sinning and I can't stop. And our conscience is being burdened and all of that, okay? Uh, where we see the power and the penalty of sin, okay? Also as well, enslaved, as it says, to false gods. And enslaved to physical corruption of our body, right? 
uh, one day we have a hope that we will be renewed physically with a new what? Incorruptible, glorious body, okay? And then the wages of sin is death, separation of God from hell, okay? So let's now go on to the last question is, who has provided for our spiritual redemption, okay? Third question is, who has provided for our spiritual redemption, okay? We've already answered the first question, which is what? Uh, what does redemption mean for the original hearers? The second question is, why do we need spiritual redemption? We've looked at that. Now we ask the question, who has provided our spiritual redemption? Okay. And the answer is Christ has provided for our spiritual redemption. But let us first begin with the Old Testament and march into the Old Testament. Turn with me real quick to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, verses 8. Psalms 130, what chapter again? Okay, verses 8, okay. Let's turn again to Psalms 130. Verses 8, okay? Psalm 130, verses 8 says, And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Okay? Uh, who, question, who is this person that is speaking? Who is this person that will provide re uh, redemption in the context? This is the Lord. Do you see this in verses 7? The Lord is the immediate context of who's mentioned. Okay? You guys see that capitalized... L-O-R-D Does all your version have a capital? That literally is in, When it does this It's saying in Hebrew It is Yahweh In Hebrew Which is actually God's personal name Okay It's mentioned twice O Israel Hope in Yahweh For the Lord So then when it says Him We know clearly It's referencing to Yahweh And then in verse 8 The pronoun He Is very clear It is God Okay So there's some passages In the scripture That says the Redeemer Must be who? Must be God Himself, okay? Must be God Himself. And notice this redemption is not talking about free from Exodus slavery. It is now very spiritual. It redeems us from sin. Because in verses 8 it says iniquities. Does all your versions say iniquities? Maybe some of your version will say transgressions or trespass or something like that. But it, in whatever it says, the term is, is of course referencing to what? Sin. So the Bible makes very clear that the Redeemer, our Redeemer, our spiritual Redeemer from our sin, must be God Himself. Okay? But then when you turn to the New Testament, when you turn to the New Testament, you discover that the person that is our Redeemer is actually Jesus Christ. Turn with me real quick to Colossians 1.14. Turn with me to Colossians 1.14. When you get to Colossians 1.14, it identifies who is our Redeemer in the New Testament. Pay attention to who it is that's being identified. It says, In Him whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You might ask again, who is this that is talking about whom? It's referencing to the last person mentioned in verses 13, which is what? His beloved, what? Son. Namely, Jesus Christ. Okay? Namely, Jesus Christ, okay? So here we see that the Redeemer is Jesus Christ. This is where I think, you know, like, sometimes you'll meet certain people that'll say of certain faiths, they'll call themselves Christians, but then they'll deny Jesus Christ as God. They'll say things like, oh, you know what? Jesus Christ never went around thinking He is, what? God. But if you think about it, Jesus Christ used certain titles that's only exclusively for God. We already saw Psalm 130, verses 8, that the Redeemer is none other from our sin, is none other than Yahweh, God. So then when Jesus Christ identifies, and the New Testament identifies He is Redeemer, the only and Redeemer from our sin, the only conclusion we could have is what? He must be God. When He appropriates the titles and the role and the action that is only exclusively of God. And one of it is the action of redemption and the role and title of Redeemer. And Christ is the one, and the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ is the one that fulfilled this out, okay? So now, instead of being formerly a slave to false gods, Jesus purchased us to be a slave of who? The true and living God. Romans 6.22, you don't have to turn there, says this, But now having been free from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. 
Romans 6.22 says, Now we're no longer slaves of the false gods. Remember earlier we saw why we need spiritual redemption? They don't own us anymore. But now we are owned by who? God. Okay? And remember earlier, like I said, the original context for the Greek and Romans ears, to be free from slave of someone, you always have to be a slave of who? Of a God. They go into the temples and the temple purchases you and therefore no one else can ever buy you because no one else could be hired enough to then go and say, hey, I'm going to purchase you, right? Mm. So now we are always to be a slave of who? Of God. And that's actually true freedom. Just like for the Greco-Roman world, for a slave to be free from a master, human master, technically on paper, he's always a slave of who? Of some God. Right? Of some god, you know, whether it's Athena or whatever else, okay? But here, in the biblical language, we're always a slave of the true God. No longer a slave of idols, but rather a slave of the true and living God. Jesus also provided redemption from the power of death. Right? He has provided for that because in 1 Corinthians 15, because he's the first fruit, we also what? We'll have what? Free from corruption of death. Because in 1 Corinthians um, uh, you know, 1555, it makes it very clear that what? Uh, shall I redeem them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. One day we will have a physical what? Body that is glorified, okay? I can't play basketball. I can't slam dunk. But I just can't wait to go to heaven. And all those people... Right? Because they never picked you. Now they say, hey, let's go play a friendly game of basketball. Okay? Hopefully we'll have a glorified body by then. Okay? By the way, this also speaks to us. I remember as a young Christian, you guys had this? I remember thinking, oh, you know, I used to think I ha- used to have a Casper view of end times. I used to think, oh, once we die, then we're like this floating white thing in heaven. Right? Maybe the most physical thing we do is play the harp or something. And I remember thinking, oh, eating ramen as a kid, thinking, huh, I kind of, kind of, you know, I kind of like something you know, I kind of maybe I enjoy food too much. But then after a biblical New Testament, an Old Testament view, a biblical view of end times, I realize, wow, we will go to heaven, but then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. We will come back down here, okay? We will have a physical body. And I was like, oh, wow, I could have my ramen. And I could have some imitation lobster that's really good, maybe better than a real thing, okay? Because there's no more death, right? So realize, wow, we are very physical, okay? So all that is to say, in light of this, we're free from what? Physical corruption. Maybe perhaps one of the reasons why perhaps sometimes God allows Christians to have so much ailment and struggles, okay? Uh, sometimes in the past, I look at the choir and some of the old women would come over and just like, man, it's almost like every one of them have a purple heart from all these things, right? Maybe God sometimes allow all these suffering and all these ailments is to make us persevere, to long our hope for heaven, okay? Even the promises as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55, okay? That we would have what? Restored resurrected body that we will be no longer slaves of physical corruption of our body but now we will be restored and redeemed from that and Jesus provide redemption from the curse of the law turn with me real quick to Galatians 3.10 Galatians 3.10 oh man what to leave in what to leave out we're running out of time for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse for it is written curse is the one who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law to perform them. This verse makes it clear. If you don't do the things of the law of God, we are under a curse. But then you catch what verse 13 happens, what it says. In order for God to redeem us, in order for God to redeem the curse of the law, what did Jesus Christ do? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been cursed for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay? This is actually a quotation from the, what? Old Testament. Okay? In fact, the Old Testament Greek translation of that word is the same word that we get, that we then later modify, become the word cross. So you ever look at the word, sometimes people wonder, wait, Christ died, did he die on a tree or did he die on a cross? And the answer is yes. That old Greek word for tree later become a technical term for the Roman way of execution, which is the cross. I mean, talk about providence. That God would use Jews that didn't know the Messiah yet to use that same term in the Greek translation that would then be used for the cross. Fulfilling it to the T. Of all pun intended. Okay? And yet the nature of redemption is not with stones or silver or precious stones like gold. As 1 Peter 1.18 But the blood of Christ. But the blood of Christ. 
So it's with this rich term that when you turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7, and we'll end here. We start in Ephesians chapter 1, and we end with Ephesians chapter 1. When it says here, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of His grace. What this should tell us is what? What a beautiful Savior. What a beautiful Christ. That when you use the word redemption, it is such a rich and loaded term. And yet He didn't purchase us with money, not with a lot of money, not with gold, not with silver, as First Peter 1.18 says, but it is with what? His Son and the blood of His Son, which means the life of Christ. As application, we must ask ourselves this question. Today, if you're here today and you're not a believer, it is by the grace of God that you're here. It is His mercy, okay? I'm a full-blooded, 100% Calvinist, okay? But if you know Calvin's theology, there's also what, what is called the well-meant offer, okay? That any time a non-believer hears a gospel, it is, it is the true grace of God, okay? Don't downplay this, okay? If you today have not known Him, please turn to Him today. If you are moved, it is, yes, yes, you must put your whole will and choice to say, I am going to choose Jesus Christ. I am going to surrender. I'm going to trust in Him, okay? I believe there is a will. We must turn to Jesus Christ today, knowing that the grace of God has worked all things to bring you here to hear Him today, the gospel, okay? So are you redeemed? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you are redeemed, are you thankful for God for what Jesus Christ has done for you as a Redeemer? Are you thankful? Listen, there's no place, like I say every week, for any arrogant Calvinists, okay? And I deal with them all the time on Facebook. On Facebook, we'll say, oh, you know what? I know more theology than my pastor, and they're not Reformed. And I'm going to tear this down and play. Whoa, 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 hold, hold your horses, right? If you are truly redeemed, if you truly believe it's by grace, even your decision to choose God, your will, is moved by the grace of God, you'd be the most humble of people. How could you go and say to your pastor and say, oh, my pastor been a pastor 20 years, but somehow he doesn't know Reformed theology. Whoa, whoa, go slow down. Submit. Don't bl- blow down churches. You ought to be the most thankful the most humble of all believers. The reality of Christ's redemption is also the motivation to flee from sin, okay? is the ability to flee from sin. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it's talking about flee from sexual immorality. As addicting as sexual immorality is, the basis for us to flee is because in verses 19 to 20, it says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of God and who has brought you, right? Verse 20, you've been brought over Christ. You've been redeemed with a price. Do you see how practical theology of redemption is? Is that if you are fighting with immorality, if you're fighting with addiction, the way to fight that is actually not just, oh, I'm going to earn, earn my money, but what is God has done first? That He's redeemed you. That He's saved you. He's purchased you. You can say no to sin. Okay? I know the campaign will dare is what? Just say no to drugs. But what do you, what do, you do when you can't just say no to drugs? What do you do when you can't say no to drugs? What do you do when you can't say no to addiction, to pornography, to whatever else, to all kinds of uh, addiction you have? Is go back and say what? You've been purchased. So when temptation comes, when sin comes, when Satan comes, you say, hey, I don't have to have no more Stockholm Syndrome with sin. I can say no because I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I know our brother is not here and maybe this is good so he's not puffing his ego. I felt our brother Jin... When I first met him, man, he was a different person than when we were in the Marines. When we were in the Marines, he was an alpha male. Mar, guys, I don't know if you guys could get the, feel, get the feeling of this. Like he was, even among the alpha males of Marines, alpha, Marines are already think they're alpha males. They want to think they're like, every Marine is a walking poster. It's like, yeah, we're better than the Army. All that nonsense, okay? But at the same time, among all of us, it was like, everyone's like, wow, this guy is a killer. Straight up. No exaggeration. Okay? But when I met him before, he was already what? I was like, wow, all those one year of drug could mess someone up so badly to become a monster that I've not even recognized. A moral monster. And yet when he said, how could I break away from this? I would say, you have to look to Christ. Are you, are you one of His? Are you a believer? Because if you are a believer, the basis of that is because you've been redeemed. You're not trying to earn redemption. You've been redeemed and now your DNA is different. Your spiritual DNA means you could say no. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be any temptation. That don't mean it'll, it'll life be easy. But the basis of why we fight, say no to sin, the basis we could have victory in Christ is based upon 
what He has done for us. Do I believe in the power of redemption to change lives? Yes. Because I see it in my own life. I see it in the life of others. And we need to. And perhaps we're struggling. Sometimes that struggle is we need to revisit redemption again. Don't just look at this verse. Oh, Jimmy, why is Jimmy Lee only preaching one word from 1-7? Is he going to go slower than Johnny Mac? Like, hey, we're going to look here. Everything not, not everything is instant chili Mac. Like you can just microwave. But when you see the richness of the word of God, you see, wow, I could say no to her morality. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 6, this is a church that is what? That's the Vegas of their day and age, okay? 20,000 prostitutes alone in the city. How do you say no? How do you live in Vegas? I always tell people, if you have to live in Vegas, go the other way, okay? Flee, run. But there are saints there. How do we say no to those temptations? It's because of your redemption. The reality of redemption is also motivation to no longer be a slave of other, of fear of man. Because sometimes when we fear man is because what? We're enslaving our opinions of what other people think of us. So all of this are powerful re- uh, motivation. And this is why we need to know the term redemption. This is why it's good to be renewed, to hear this again and again. To know that you've been redeemed. So that you would say, hey, the joy of the Lord is your identity has already been achieved. You have such a great promise. You realize, listen, as a Christian, your biggest problem by definition has already been solved. You guys realize the biggest problem in the world today is what? Is how do people achieve salvation? But for a believer, our biggest problem, you realize hell is a bigger problem than all your temporal problems right now? That is forever, right? You realize how short life is, right? I can't believe I'm almost approaching 10 years of marriage, and it's going so fast, okay? Uh, I'm finally growing, the prayer that I prayed when I was like a young seminarian is answered. I'm getting gray hair, finally, okay? But in light of all this, you realize life is short. Life is like a toilet paper. In the beginning, you feel you had a lot, but towards the end, the more you pull, you're like, hey, where's it all going? It's gone, okay? But in light of all this, listen, my brothers and sisters, your biggest problem has been solved. The problem of God's judgment for all eternity. He's paid the cost. So all your problem, by definition, is secondary. Do you guys see how it also put all perspective, our problem in proper perspective? Sometimes in our struggles, and I know every one of us go through trials and struggles and tribulations of all sorts. We need to know, hey, our biggest problem is solved. And when you approach your daily problem in that way, it becomes so different, Okay. I feel even for myself, when I was struggling, like, oh, will I ever be a pastor, all that stuff, realize, hey, you know what? My identity is not even a pastor. If I'm not a pastor, I'm first and foremost a believer in God. But you see how liberating that is in terms of going life goal? I'm not trying to earn this to be a status. So that even when I was working as a security guard, I remember sometimes people insult in Hollywood, right? People walk around with big ego in Hollywood all the time, right? CEOs make these rules, say, oh, everyone has a check for ID. Then they walk through the door, they get really hurt. Oh, I'm the manager. Do you not know who I am? And then you're just a rent-a-cop. And then all my boss, all my manager get all worked up. When they say, you call me a rent-a-cop, you think I have, am I hurt? I say, ha, huh, I just laugh. And all because what? My identity is not whether or not I'm a security guard or what I do. Right? My identity is in Christ. He was redeeming, right? You realize every good occupation people could always make fun of, right? You could be a pharmacist and people say, you know what? You're nothing more than a glorified drug dealer, right? And yet, all, you'll be honest, no matter what it is, some will always insult us. But you know what? You cannot have your identity in your work, yeah. in your status, right? Of being a mom. Like, look at me. I'm the super mom. I'm on a blog. And I do everything accomplished. Well, in reality, then you crash and burn. And you're like, oh, your identity is not based upon what you've done. But your identity is built upon Christ, who's redeemed you, who saved you. And therefore, then you have the joy to do everything for the glory of God. Let's close in a word of prayer.